You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Sebastian Noizen, who is currently a researcher at Microsoft Research Cambridge. Sebastian managed the Machine Intelligence and Perception Group at MSR, then worked at Google Brain in Berlin, before joining Microsoft again recently. Sebastian's research focuses on probabilistic deep learning, consequences of model misspecification, understanding agent complexity in order to improve learning efficiency, and designing models for reasoning and planning. His PhD thesis is titled Learning with Structured Data, Applications to Computer Vision, which he completed in 2009. We discussed the work in his thesis on structured inputs, including the substructure POSET framework and graph-based object recognition, as well as structured outputs, which involves beautiful ideas from polyhedral combinatorics and optimization. We talk about his recent work on Bayesian deep learning, entitled How Good is the Bayes Posterior in Deep Neural Networks Really?, and the connections that it has to ideas that he explored during his PhD over a decade ago. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mention in the show notes. Here's Sebastian Noizen with Learning with Structured Data, Applications to Computer Vision on the Thesis Review. So your thesis has a lot of elegant mathematical frameworks in it. In in your view, what is the role of mathematics in machine learning research? Yeah, I guess that's a very philosophical question. So for me, uh, the answer may be different than for other people, but I think in general, um, it has, of course, a role of communicating clearly, right? I mean, to express the algorithms that we develop, the models that we develop, we have to use a formal language. And mathematics is, for all of science and for computer science uh, in particular, I think the the clearest uh, form of communication that one can have. So that's obviously a function, but I think um, more um, moreover than just as a form of communication, I think if you think about uh, possible alternatives, right? So if you want to solve a particular application or if you want to um, explore a certain, you know, approach to a certain problem, I think if you randomly explore things, um, if you randomly would, you know, for example, just write a piece of code that, you know, try to, tries to get some goal to, to some goal, like, for example, the early pattern recognition works in the, in the early 80s, um, kind of, if you see, People exploring these approaches uh, in a in a not so ordered fashion, I think that's inefficient. That's very inefficient. And so mathematics can have, um, by its formalization of various forms of structure, can have um, some guidance into how to think about various approaches, in what classes do they f- fall, and how to explore systematically. So I think for me, mathematics is a way to structure an exploration of approaches to certain problems, and um, I think it's uniquely suited to that. And um, if I if there would be a better system, I I would be 
very happy to adopt the better system, but so far mathematics has proven both powerful and efficient and structured enough to uh, to solve um, the problems that I'm interested in. And so I think it's difficult to see what alternative there is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so clear communication as well as this structured exploration. Yeah, and, and also a separation of concerns. So one example there could be, if you think about optimization problems, right? you can think about a hierarchy of, uh, of how you formulate the problem. So for example, you consider a certain class of problems, say a linear program. right? So a linear program is a formalization of um, a type of problem that one is interested in. And it has clear properties, and you can study it independent of any algorithm. And then you have a set of algorithms which match that abstraction and approach that problem. And so it's this composability of and, and separation of concerns of various stages of the sort, right? Um, one can think about hierarchies of optimization problems. So every linear program is an instance of a quadratic program. Every quadratic program is an instance of a semi-definite program, et cetera. So you have these hierarchies, these towering hierarchies of abstractions. And mathematics is very powerful at, at um building these abstractions and relating them. And then ultimately, you can go all the way to the detailed, uh, you know, how to solve these things, how to operationalize these things, how is error propagated in the actual implementation of these things. So it's kind of uh, affords you a huge degree of freedom and what level of abstraction you want to think about a problem and you can go back and forth. And uh, I think that's a real freedom afforded by mathematics. Do you think that this view has changed over the years or, or that you use mathematics more or less i think it for me personally um maybe not so much or yeah i don't know it's a difficult question i think maybe until um until some point in machine learning say until basically the the deep learning approach came to the forefront there was i think a strong emphasis on mathematics driven innovation so um, you saw this clearly at uh, NIPS conference, which is now the New Europe's conference, where people would basically sell ideas based on the mathematical merit. And I think you can appreciate ideas based on mathematical merit and on its beauty. And sometimes this lead to amazing innovations. So the example there that comes to mind, for example, is uh, two examples would be kernel methods and boosting. Both are based on beautiful mathematical ideas, right? You have basically... Um, a concept of how to evaluate certain functions in a product of, of um, certain inner products efficiently, and that is very flexible and applicable. And that's ultimately um, based on a very formal analysis that led to a method that is practically useful. And similar in boosting, it almost started with a philosophical problem: Can you take weak learners and improve those? Um, again, it's started from a very formal mathematical thought process and ultimately produced a very useful method. So certainly there's evidence of, you know, that kind of thinking. But I think nowadays, and in particular with the rise of deep learning, um, there is more a healthy engineering culture of building working systems first and iterating quickly on working systems. And it's a, mm -hmm. it's possible because these systems have a very composable nature. So we can one can have innovation at the building block level and it will diffuse rapidly and affect many possible implementations. So um, I think that has changed and that wasn't the case before. So the basically the infrastructure and the frameworks that are now there and the composability of the basic substrate of ideas, right? like deep learning architectures, for example, it's much more composable now and therefore 
um, it has shifted towards a more faster rate of innovation, more incremental innovation, but compounded by this faster iteration, maybe overall much higher higher outcome in terms of the innovation. That would be my, you know, armchair analysis of the shift. And I think myself personally, I'm still drawn to a very mathematical worldview, but ultimately I'm very interested in building systems that work. And so I like to go back and forth like a pendulum a bit uh, between understanding what I did there or, you know, being inspired by some advance in a method and then trying to build something that works. Yeah, there is a beautiful idea that a method could be created just through this sort of mathematical exploration. Yeah, I think uh, ultimately we are drawn to this ideal that, you know, with, with, uh, with a you know, retreat from society and have some deep thought for a few days or weeks <laughs> or whatever, you come back and you have like this, this great idea. But in reality, of course, um, you know, sometimes an idea is in the air and many people work on it at the same time or you are inspired by, you know, a work that has just been published, you read it and you have a twist on the idea. So I think most um, most ideas are heavily influenced by existing work and it's a healthy culture to be influenced by existing work. So I think it's rather the exception that you really have a fundamental insight or breakthrough. Certainly for me, that's absolutely the exception. Um, and I would say for most people that I have observed working in the field, that they really have a breakthrough idea in isolation. I think machine learning is... A team sport and you know you influence people around you you get influenced by people around you and that's a very healthy thing overall mm -hmm. yeah so then maybe let's go back to uh before you started the phd what was your background like and how did you decide to do a phd yeah so i um uh, I had a computer science background so i did a um, bachelor or equivalent to a bachelor in berlin I was um, maybe more looking further back. I was starting to program very early. So I basically started programming when I was nine and constantly program throughout my, my use until I joined university where I continued programming. So I, I was really kind of a keen programmer. And although I was drawn to mathematics a bit, I think more to computer science and general algorithms and you know, understanding the low-level bits that flows through a computer, essentially low-level hacking work, understanding that. And so I was quite efficient at that. But I I would say when I joined university, I quite lacked math mathematical maturity and didn't receive a lot of mathematical education in the, in the uh, bachelor degree. And moreover, I spent my master's, uh, two years I spent in Shanghai, um, where you know I had a great experience and the, the overall experience was wonderful, but in terms of education, maybe uh, I also didn't receive uh, solid training in say, you know, linear algebra, statistics. So the interesting thing then is how did I come to do a PhD um, when I returned from my place in uh, in Shanghai after after obtaining a master's, I had to do one more year studies for a diploma degree. So I got two degrees for one C effort. And um, basically during that time, I started to be really interested in machine learning. And I reached out to a developer that developed a toolbox for machine learning. It was called Spider. And I sent them some, some fixes. So I found some bugs in their code and I sent them some fixes. And that sparked a conversation which ultimately led to me giving a talk at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics, which is now the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems in Tübingen, 
which at the time and uh, still is probably one of the largest machine learning groups in Europe, which I didn't know at the time, of course. And the funny thing is when I um, I was invited to give a talk about my diploma thesis and I thought nothing of it, but um, three days before I gave the talk, um, the person who would host me gave me a, a call and said, okay, did you prepare the talk slides? And I said, yes, of course, I prepared the talk slides and I can send them to you. And he said, oh, he didn't tell me, but actually it's an interview talk for a PhD position. And I said, okay, <laughs> now I'm, I can no longer be nervous. I prepared the talk. <laughs> so I, I by, by luck, I, I basically became a PhD student in one of the best places in Europe to do the PhD in machine learning, which was quite amazing. I mean, um, in a way, in retrospect, it's it really happened that way. But of course, you know, not everyone, um, you know, had great grades. I had great grades in my on all my studies, and I also had, um, you know, not everybody sends fixes to the maintainer of a machine learning toolbox. So, you know, in a way, there's in hindsight, if we, if I look at this, it wasn't so unnatural, but uh, it was funny because I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't apply actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, so that's how I started to do my PhD. And uh, when I started there, um, basically there were 80 people in the group, roughly 80 people, and um, a lot of postdocs, relatively few PhD students, so two to one ratio. And everybody was, at least this was my impression back then, everybody was smarter and more educated than me. So everybody had a solid background in probability and statistics and machine learning already. And I felt I really had a, um, um, you know, imposter syndrome in a way. And I compensated for that by working very hard. And I read a lot and I worked basically every waking hour to to mm -hmm. catch up. This was my impression, to catch up on the um, on the lack of knowledge. And I catched up on a lot of different things. And probably we'll talk about some of them as we visit my PhD thesis. But um, that was my, my journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So the kind of starting programming early and then probably that um, expertise that you had built up in programming somehow put you in the place where it, it was possible to make that contribution to the open source project. And then that happened to be a entryway to a PhD program. And then it sounds like you did a lot of self-study uh, once you entered it. There were reading groups. And of course, the amazing thing was when you had a question about a paper with high probability, any NURPS paper or NIPS paper at the time, uh, the author was sitting down the hallway. So one of the authors was sitting down the hallway. I mean, it was really kind of a very concentrated powerhouse of machine learning expertise. Now they are all over the world distributed. And um, so it was really an amazing experience. I'm very grateful for that. And then actually the programming helped me a lot to compensate so i could um and i think that's still true today in machine learning a, a person who can really is a good software developer can uh, can produce a lot of really useful thing even if they may lack a certain knowledge about um you know more advanced concepts um, but a person who is just really educated in the mathematical aspects may struggle to have great impact in in deep learning um mm -hmm. at least in the more more practical uh, practical outcomes, making things work. And so I, I could use that to a great extent, indeed. Yeah, I've noticed that as well, that if someone just has a very strong computer science background, they can always start off by at least working on the practical part and then keep building the other skills kind of in the background. Yeah, and indeed. And then they wake up two, three years later and they have both set of skills. 
Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I, I think this speaks to the fact that nowadays, machine learning is we run experiments and experiments are code, right? And so our experiments are code. And if you can code, you can basically um, do a large ex a large fraction of the work that's necessary. And the, the remaining part, of course, you need either guidance or you need to pick up that skill quickly, but you can make yourself very useful already. Mm -hmm. And then your PhD thesis, it's titled Learning with Structured Data, Applications to Computer Vision. So I guess these two parts are structured data and then computer vision. When did you decide to kind of focus on both of these areas? Um, so um, one wasn't my choice, really, the computer vision part. Um, I did work on vision-like problems before, both for my master's thesis and for my diploma thesis. I, for my master's thesis, I worked on analyzing medical images. And for my diploma thesis, I um, worked on classification methods for images. So I was naturally slotted into the computer vision part, which was a small group of, I think, around four or five people at the Max Planck Institute at the time. And I was, I think I was funded by a European Union project that was related to computer vision. So. So that's kind of the computer vision part, and I, you know, I was naturally drawn to looking at images. It's nice to look at the results. It, you know, and have an intuitive understanding of the signal. So I think I didn't mind that, but my heart was never really in computer vision. Um, and then with the structured data, I think that was much more my own uh, motivation to develop methods that could handle rich signals and, at the time, images. Um, but uh, as we will see, also other other structure, I think. So so that the first part, you know, the big letters on my thesis, these are my own volition. And the, the other part was just the area where I was working in with colleagues. I see. So then um, the thesis, I guess, at a very high level is divided into two parts. So structured inputs and structured outputs. Maybe just to make sure everyone's on the same page, what do we actually mean by structure? That's a good question, and um, it's a funny anecdote. I received the same question from a thesis examiner in my thesis exam, <laughs> and this was a trained mathematician. And <laughs> Hopefully this is less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and so, yes, it's a good question, right? Um, basically, in the concept, um, the concept as I understand it for my thesis, um, and the word structure is heavily overloaded, of course, is um, for structured input is anything that is not a simple vector of data. So anything that requires a consideration of how elements relate in the input space. And structured output is if you um, have more than one decision to make, essentially. So for example, if you don't want to just regress a scalar or a single decision, a single class label, but there is some intrinsic structure, how the output elements relate to each other. So there are some elements that have um, an interrelationship between each other that you need to be that you need to consider and in my thesis the way that is formalized is through a structured loss function but this is not my concept I mean this was at the time and I can provide a broader context there as well and at the time this was pretty standard um, how structured prediction worked you had a structured loss function between uh, two a structure so for example say a segmentation on an image and a ground truth segmentation and so how good do these two things match the predicted segmentation and the ground truth segmentation and so that's formalized by a structured loss function that considers these many many elements say a million pixels here a million pixels there and how they relate mm -hmm. so it's actually the loss function in this case that's 
exploiting the structure in the sense that you could still, even though structure means that it's not vector, you could still represent a structure as a vector and then something needs to kind of exploit the structure. Does that question make sense? Yeah, this question makes sense. There's another part, which is, um, I think I call it prediction function in the Caesars, and I don't. I think it's maybe a reasonably standard term. So a function which maps the input to an element of the feasible outputs. So it's actually, yeah. uh, in statistics, it's called a decision rule, right? But the decision space here is a very large, usually combinatorial set. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you think about normal image classification tasks, you would take, say, an ArcMax decision, and that is simple to make because all elements can be enumerated and you can just pick the ArcMax, right? But what mm -hmm. if the space of possible predictions is uh, very, very large, so, for example, exponentially sized over some base set or something? So, um, mm -hmm. in this case, for example, an image segmentation, right? And so, uh, if now the the function that you want to learn directly maps into this very large set. Um, the question is how to even represent such a function and how mm -hmm. to learn and iteratively update such a function. And then when you predict with this function, how do you compute whether you're doing a good job? So the, whether you do a good job, you can compute that with a structured loss function. But the mm -hmm. other part of this so basically is two parts, a structured loss and how do you represent a structured prediction function, a function that maps to a, very, to a single element of a very large set uh, for every mm -hmm. one of its inputs. And so that's the other part. And that's not very common anymore today. Um, actually, that's, that really has shifted, I think, that basically fizzled out with the rise of deep learning. So then uh, the first part, you develop this substructure POSET framework. And so this is on the part of the thesis that's focusing on structured inputs. Um, do you want to just kind of talk through what what this is and what the motivation for it is? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, um, so the substructure POSET framework is a synthesis out of uh, some existing works and some works I contributed to the field on how we can build classification and regression functions on very structured data inputs. So think of, for example, sets of elements, of discrete elements or sequences or um, molecular graphs, for example, right? So labeled undirected graphs, for example. Say we want to classify graphs, how, how can we even approach this? And so the classic way in machine learning to approach this is to turn a structured object into some kind of features. So for molecular graphs, you would extract what's called a fingerprint vector, maybe you know 30 or 300 scalars that characterize the behavior of this molecule. And nowadays mm -hmm. with modern machine learning methods, you maybe would use an embedding method or something like that. But um, an alternative way, and this is a substru substructure posted framework, is to consider um, a structured relationship, so in this case, really a partial order, that's a POSET, partial ordered set um, mm -hmm. of these structures. And for graphs or for sets, uh, let's talk about sets for, for simplicity. Um, if you have sets of integers, say, you have a natural relationship, which is a subset relationship. So for example, mm -hmm. um, an element, a set one and that contains the elements one and two is a subset of a set that contains one, two, and three. That's obvious. Um, and the set one and three is a subset of the same bigger set. Um, but it's a partial order because the set one and two is not a subset of one and three. And alternatively, mm -hmm. one and three is not a subset of one and two. So not every pair of elements in the larger universe of sets can be ordered. 
and therefore it's a called a partial order. And so the idea is then of the subsector poset framework is to say, let's define features using the subset relationship. And the way we do this is we will have as many features as there are possible sets, which you know could be mm -hmm. finite or infinite. Um, and so we have a binary feature vector, and the element in that feature vector is one if that particular subset that is indexed by this particular element in the feature vector, if that subset is contained um, in the set that we test. So, for example, um, I would uh, let's say we have only three possible elements in a set, one, two, and three. So there are two to the power of three elements in our universe, the empty set to the full set. And then we have a feature vector of eight binary features for every possible input. So now if we have a set that is given to us that contains the elements one and three, we would have the empty set as a feature. So this is kind of always on, always one. Then we have the set that corresponds to one. Uh, the set that corresponds to two is not a subset. So it has a zero as feature and so on. We would enumerate all possible subsets and we get a binary feature vector. And so this is a reasonably universal way if you have a subset relationship to construct uh, a large binary feature space for uh, the given input. And so in fact, it's universal. It can, for example, represent any classification boundary on the set of all sets. Um, and so this is something, for example, that I show constructively in the thesis as well. And so the question is then, um, if you have a very large set of possibilities, so for example, all unlabeled, uh, all labeled undirected graphs, right? Mm -hmm. You have this super large feature space, and how can you do computation with it, right? How can you, for example, learn a classifier in this space if even enumerating this feature space for a single input is infeasible, mm -hmm. or in the naive way at least is infeasible? And so. Um, I use existing work and I extend existing work in my thesis to show this for uh, sets, for sequences, and for graphs um, with various applications. And um, the basic uh, the basic way this is achieved is that you construct uh, clever enumeration algorithms in the mm -hmm. set of all possible sets, for example, that don't vi have to visit all possible sets, but that visit only a small fraction of it. And using these enumeration algorithms, you can construct sparse classifiers or sparse regressors. And because they are sparse, ultimately, they will only contain, say, a few hundred uh, features. And because they contain only a few hundred features, they can actually evaluate it for a new instance. So um, the additional benefit of having a sparse, um, sparse function, linear function on this feature space is that you can actually inspect the features that are learned and their weights, for example, for a linear function. And when you do that, you can um, you can test, for example, uh, for chemical compound classification, whether they are toxic or not. This was one application that I worked on in follow-up work. Um, mm -hmm. You can actually inspect which substructures, which subgraphs are identified as toxic and non-toxic. And so this mm -hmm. is, you know, directly interpretable for the domain expert in some cases, depending on the particular application example. But um, so that's kind of the benefit. And that's on a high level a way if you have very combinatorial type inputs, very symbolic inputs, symbolic, and the symbols make sense. Uh, so, for example, chemical compounds as labeled graphs is a good example. Um, these symbols really make sense. This is a very good model of molecules. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, this representation makes sense. And therefore, what you can learn 
really is interpretable. Um, in my thesis, I apply to visual data, and ultimately, spoiler alert, the conclusion is that the graphs that I derive mm -hmm. for images are actually not very sensible because it turns out that images are not very symbolic. Um, mm -hmm. And that's related to the big shift, I think, if you look at the um, a lot of the, the vision community in that time when I wrote my thesis was focused on part-based models and interpreting images as composition of parts with various energy functions that describe how parts relate. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas now we are much more agnostic about philosophical approaches to image recognition, for example, and to just say, okay, we can have various confident architectures that you know, make make the grounding problem go away. We just put in the pixels and we get the classification decision out. But of course, I mean, people now investigate other approaches as well. But that's kind of was a was a mm -hmm. brief overview of the substructure posted framework. Yeah, I found this framework to be really elegant. Right? The idea that you could sort of define it for integers, sets, graphs, things like this. Do you think that, um, I guess, if it's used to derive features for um, a classifier, do you think that this was uh, kind of motivated by the fact that at the time you had to kind of hand design features and maybe today would you even think about developing something like the substructure post-it framework? It's a good question. So, um, I mean, now for context, uh, you know, graph graph classification, for example, uh, or other structured problems are very differently addressed. So if I want to classify sets, for example, I would use a point net or deep set approach. Uh, if I mm -hmm. want to classify graphs or do regression on graphs, uh, I would use a graph neural network, right? And I think there's mm -hmm. real benefits to taking these approaches, in particular, much more flexibility on what, what you do with a, with a model. Um, Interpretability, of course, is still a strong approach. So I think if you're actually really interested in the interpretability of the approach and not just the mm. predictive performance, there may be some value in it. Um, yeah, I think one one related thing in my diploma thesis, I worked on also classifying graphs for images using a different approach. Um, and that's the marginalized graph kernel. So it's a actually... Um, in a kernel method that allows you to define an inner product space uh, for reproducing kernel Hilbert space, so inner product space for graphs. And interestingly, it also maps a graph, a labeled graph, undirected labeled graph, into an infinite sized feature vector that corresponds, where every element in that feature vector corresponds to um, a random walk along the graph with some certain mm -hmm. truncation probability. So you have an infinite-sized uh, feature space because you have basically infinitely many passes that go around in the graph. And um, the amazing thing is if you define that space correctly, you can take actually the inner product of two such vectors efficiently or reasonably efficiently. Mm -hmm. And um, so that approach already um, has good predictive performance, but it wasn't interpretable. And so that motivated, uh, that motivated, together with discussions with my colleagues at the time at Tübingen, of course, uh, to revisit similar type feature spaces, but in an interpretable way. And so uh, that led to discussions how to actually do this and what feature space could we use and what technology would be required. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think marginalized graph kernels are still used in certain domains or tree walk kernels or other variations of marginalized graph kernels are still used. 
uh, today and quite successfully. But I think overall in the last two or three years, I think graph neural networks really have huge benefits and demonstrated again and again, huge applicability across many domains. So I'm much more excited now, although I don't actively work on this myself, but I'm much more excited now about mm -hmm. graph neural networks. And if, if I have any problem of the sort, I would probably pick a graph neural network. Going back to the um, kind of shift from these part-based models to neural models, as the shift happened, um, I, I mean, like, what was it like? Did it sort of feel like all of your work was going to be shifting in a new direction or? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I, no, I didn't feel like this. I mean, when you, uh, you probably know this yourself, right? But when you write a PhD thesis at some point, I, I think it took me six months to write a PhD thesis. At some point you're saturated with your own work and you just want to move on <laughs> and find something new and interesting. And so I didn't feel like at all that anything was devalued and also at the time I wrote my thesis and I did the work, it didn't get huge traction, to be honest. I mean, it was considered, people looked at this and they were interested in parts of the algorithm and technology, but not in terms of, you know, really causing a, a transformation in the field or you're really sparking a subfield or anything of the sort. So I wasn't really intellectually wet to my, um, uh, to, to my technology that I developed or the approaches that I developed. And mm -hmm. um, I spent the next few years after my PhD working in applied computer vision domains. Um, mm -hmm. And then in 2012, when basically the deep learning revolution, at least for, for my perception, started. So I was, I was there in, at ECCV, actually, when um, Alex Krzyzewski announced the ImageNet result, and, um, which was then published in, at, the, at the NIPS conference in 2012. Um, in my mind, it was clear that this is the way forward, but it took me another two years to really, for my own research and my own choices, to really internalize it and, and make the pivot towards deep learning. And roughly around 2014 or 2015, I stopped working on, on computer vision, really. I mean, here and there, a small computer vision application, but my main motivation was to explore deep learning and algorithms and models for deep learning, as well as applications of deep learning technology. Mm -hmm. I see. You you alluded to the um, results with the graph-based object recognition where kind of incorporating the substructure post-it framework led to kind of similar results, would you say, to the baselines? Yeah. And so the, maybe that requires a bit of contextualization for what the baselines were at the time. So the basic right. <laughs> approaches for classifying images at the time um, were based on large pipelines, um, which extracted local salient features from the image. So for example, corners or center surround regions, so bright regions against black backgrounds and so on. And so various criteria were invented to const construct these descriptors, um, which are easily re-identifiable across images. Originally, they were used for structure for motion approaches. So you wanted to find the same corner from a slightly different perspective, for example, or the same patch from the same uh, from a slightly changed perspective, and that was incredibly useful in, for example, aligning cameras. Um, but they were used for computer vision as well for higher order 
uh, image understanding tasks like uh, image classification, for example. And the way this worked was that you extract these salient features and small descriptors around these salient features. So these descriptors would summarize, for example, gradient statistics in a local vicinity around these points. And you would cluster them using some clustering approach into basically, say, 200 or 2,000 vectors. And then you would make a histogramming approach. So an image would then be represented by a histogram. And then you would transform this histogram in various ways, scale it, for example. And these histograms would then be the input to a machine learning approach. So you can already see that, you know, you had this huge pipeline of literally eight to 10 steps. And every lab at the time had a proprietary secret source on how their pipeline worked. You know, if, you, <laughs> if we take these histogram values through a square root function or through a power transform, right, then, you know, it works <laughs> slightly better. And so literally, it was already a very saturated field with a I would think a cottage industry of making incremental improvements to these pipe, ever-growing pipelines. And so mm -hmm. it was just frustrating uh, for various reasons, uh, ultimately because you couldn't see how such an approach could ever lead to really image understanding. But also, mm -hmm. um, as an outsider in the Tübingen group, we didn't have this expertise. We didn't have the, the big vision group that had these existing pipelines. So we had to either partner up or we had to... Uh, focus our efforts on very specific projects. So um, from that perspective, that was a baseline, right? Basically uh, a back of words approach, a histogramming approach of you know some mm -hmm. descriptors. And so the idea was then, okay, actually what could be a real step change on that? The histogramming approach has a huge deficiency that it only considers frequency of things, but not how things relate. So they make a certain independence assumption, right? So a feature, simple example would be if you could put four wheels in the image, right? You would get a, you would get the wheel descriptor to fire, and you would see, oh, there are four wheels. This must be a car, but you could rearrange the wheels any way you want in the image, and it would still be a car, right? So um, the idea was then actually let's consider rough approximations of the geometric relationships of these features in the image. And how could we encode these relationships? Well, graphs are a very natural way to encode relationships between pairs of objects, at least, and hypergraphs maybe between triples or even more types of objects. So mm -hmm. that was the kind of thinking that started already in my diplomacy, and that's what I continued. And ultimately, um, it's, it's in a way a failure. It worked only as well as normal histogramming approaches because essentially the even the notion that these that these simple parts that you detect already correspond to some semantically meaningful parts is um, is not really given. It's not really the case. So these these detectors are reliable detectors of certain geometric properties, but they don't correspond to semantic parts really. And that is where it fell apart. And that also questioned for me the kind of the symbolic approach to computer vision, right? Where we really think about um, an object being composed of certain symbolic parts and relationships, and this is how we make sense of the world. I think that's has proven to be, at least until now, not to be the case. Um, and therefore, I kind of lost face in this semi-symbolic approach. I mean, we used machine learning, we used extracted features, we used learned transformations, but we we still imposed our view of, you know, these are discrete parts that are either there or not there in an image. And that's just mm. uh, not the case. I see. So in some sense, at least for you personally, the negative result, at least in terms of like the course of your research, uh, probably had a positive effect in the sense that it caused you to call into question these existing methods that you were working on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly for computer vision. And at the time, you know, computer vision also was just adopting machine learning technology, really. 
Um, I mean, they mm. were using machine learning to some extent, but the the communities were further apart. So you would see work at, for example, ICML and the NIPS conference at the time. You would see there's a three-year gap in terms of the machine learning advances. And uh, I think now it is very much close together. And for me, I think one of the realization is is really these neural network approaches are much more suitable to image signals than anything we had at the time. And um, so my personal realization that, you know, trying to make things more symbolic and encode more prior knowledge or, or even learn within a structure, within a structural prior of how things relate is very difficult in computer vision. And so the, the way we can impose structure on computer vision problems needs to be at a much higher level. Um, and, and how the image is uh, relating to that needs to be all figured out by machine learning. So basically, we have to use somehow the raw pixels. That was not now a realization that I had at the time when I finished my thesis, of course, right? That's a hindsight mm -hmm. interpretation given the benefit of hindsight. But uh, I think ultimately, I think that's caused to me, caused me to to pause and question, you know, I could have gone to hypergraphs. I could have pushed the approach even further. And maybe it would have worked a percent better. But really, that it is marginal gains for not really... Um, uh, by not by by not addressing the right problem, the right problem is a different problem, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, yeah. Did you end up in the future working in this direction of trying to impose structure at a higher level? Um, I did a few investigations of um, machine learning models or deep learning models that impose higher structures. So for example, there was an a model that we pursued with Diane Bouchakour, um who's now at Facebook, um, to impose structure that is given by sets of observations. So for example, we want to learn a representation of an image, for example, say a face image. I think the example we had in the paper was a face image. And mm -hmm. we want to create a disentangled representation. But what does disentanglement even mean? Um, and so we object um, made an objective there that said, actually, I'm, I have multiple images of the same person. And Basically, I have a set observation. You know, I don't know how these. Uh, I don't know, for example, where these person look or how whether their eyes are closed or open or etc. But I know that these observations are related, and that allowed the model to discover and structure the latent space in such a way that you basically get disentanglement between identity and expression, and you get mix and match properties. So you can basically repose a person and transfer identity or transfer everything that is not identity, essentially. So I think that's kind of the level when I mean that we have to insert prior knowledge. That is a level that I'm happy with, right? The model is still free to organize the latent space any way it wants, so long mm -hmm. as um, this constraint of, of uh, um, this is an image of the same person is obeyed. Right? But how the latent space is structured is, is up to the model. So the most of it, like 99.9% .9 of, of any choice is up to the model, and we just insert very high-level uh, preference, um, and the model respects that. So I think that's the, that's the right level, how to structure things. But obviously, other people have explored um, in much de more depths um, how to insert prior knowledge into deep learning systems. Mm -hmm. I see. Does this at all relate to this? Uh, I saw this recent work you had on um, independent subspace analysis for disentangled representations? That's another work that uh, was mostly pursued by Jan Stümer, actually, um, mm. and a more agnostic approach without having these set-level observations. So the, mm. um, the basic idea there is that um, if you have 
for the latent space in a variational autoencoder approach, if you have a rotationally symmetric prior, then you cannot expect disentanglements along dimensions, which is a reasonably mm -hmm. obvious statement if you think about it, right? Because you can apply a rotation matrix to the first linear transformation in the decoder and to the last linear transformation in the encoder. And you can basically rotate the space any way you want and mix up the dimensions in any way you want. Um, however, if so what that ex, uh, paper explored is what happens if you use priors that, um, uh, that don't have this rotationally uh, invariant property. And interestingly, mm -hmm. then you can observe phenomena such as disentangling along dimensions. And so this paper studies that. Um, that's another mm -hmm. way to insert prior knowledge, right? You have to think about how do, you, how do you want the latent space to look like, either by inserting constraints, additional observations, for example, or by uh, thinking about the prior distribution for this latent space. And this was an approach just to try to st structure the space by inserting prior knowledge about the distribution. Yeah, yeah, because there I noticed that the prior had this hierarchical structure flavor to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so then um, unless you wanted to talk about anything else in that section, maybe we could move on to the uh, jump to the outputs section of the thesis. Absolutely. Yeah. So this was, yeah. So so this was focusing, uh, well, application wise, focusing on image segmentation. Mm -hmm. Um, and throughout this section, you were using undirected graphical models. So could could you maybe just give a high level overview of of these and why they were suited for computer vision? Yeah, why they were suited to computer vision at the time, I would say. So <laughs> uh, I think they're still very useful. And it's, it's also useful to understand these models and what what uh, potential benefits they have and what drawbacks they have. So uh, um, mm -hmm. undirected graphical models is one way to formalize it. I think the more fresh approach, um, and I think the way I present it in the, in the thesis as well, is through factor graphs. Um, so the basic idea is, so this is all, these are all discrete models, by the way. So the basic idea is that you have a set of variables and you want mm -hmm. discrete variables and you want to define a joint distribution for all of these discrete variables. And so the question is, how do you define a joint distribution? And the means by which this is achieved in factor graphs, in discrete factor graphs and in undirected graphical models is to define an energy function. And then mm -hmm. with this energy function, you can have an unnormalized probability distribution. And then you basically take the sum over all these unnormalized probabilities uh, over all possible configurations, which is a finite set because everything is discrete, and you normalize this distribution. So mm -hmm. if you think about this, it's just an energy-based model, as you would call it nowadays. But the energy, in addition, has a property that it can be expressed as a sum over factors over perfector energies and each of these perfector energies only involves a small subset of variables so you can mm -hmm. think of this as a bipartite graph so a graph where on the think of it as a you know you have two columns on the left you have the actual variable nodes ordered every possible variable that you have and on the right uh, part you have a column of factor nodes and a factor node is only allowed to connect to one or multiple 
variable nodes. So this is a bipartite graph, basically. Any edge between these graph nodes only goes between the nodes of two different types, not between nodes of the same type. So you basically have then this factor graph, and at every factor lives a small energy function, which takes in as input all the variable configurations that belong to that factor and outputs an energy, which is just a scalar, say 4.5 or 3.7 or minus 12. And you sum up all of these energies and the sum is the energy of the entire joint configuration. So that's a factor graph. And these models uh, have been used a lot in computer vision under various names. So Markov random field, conditional random field, factor graphs, of course, um, energy-based models, etc. So the advantage of these models is that they are very symmetric. So you don't have to define a direction of how things are computed. Basically, a factor has a scope, a set of nodes, which it is associated to. And it is just taking look, a look at these nodes and computing an energy function. And also, because this graph is relatively sparse, the way you typically use them, uh, you can run algorithms along the structure of the graph. And uh, for example, message passing algorithms or um, move-making algorithms or other energy minimization algorithms. Um, so belief propagation is a famous example of that. Um, you have other, for example, ICM for finding finding modes of the configuration. You have min-sum diffusion. You have a lot of algorithms, that basically dozens of different algorithms that you can run on these structured graphs. And so it really hinges on, I think the benefit of this type of modeling hinges on a couple of different things. The first is any almost anything in these models is by definition intractable, with a few exceptions mm -hmm. being uh, chain-structured or tree-structured graphs. Um, so you need approximations. And so the question is how much of a deterioration you observe due to these approximations. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the other thing is how natural, I think the big thing for computer vision, for example, is how natural can you express your problem into this form? And I think this is where computer vision falls a bit short typically. Because if you just give every node, uh, identify every node with a pixel in an image, um, basically that's not a very good grounding of the real inference that you want to perform in terms of, say, objects or object boundaries with respect to um, the, the model that you can have. So you would either require then to recapture some of that by introducing factors which have a very large scope, which talk to many variables at once, um, mm -hmm. or by preprocessing your image, for example, in the CSIS, I group image pixels into super pixels, which is, I, I don't know if it's a concept still being used in computer vision, but it's basically a way to arrange pixels in clustering pixels in such a way that they are very unlikely to straddle object boundaries. And so now you have, for example, whatever, 100 pixels associated to one super pixel, and then you can basically put a single variable node on top of the super pixel and have a much higher level representation in the, object, uh, in, in the, in the model. So these models um, can be estimated, can be learned, um, in various ways, I have a I wrote a follow up tutorial booklet about uh, about these kind of models. I think they've fallen out of favor, and to be honest, rightfully so for many applications. Um, and I can mm -hmm. talk about the reasons there as well why why I think that's um, that's the case. But uh, yeah, I had great fun. They are they are still useful in many applications, but I think in computer vision or continuous signal processing, speech, etc., where they have been used in the past, they are I think. Uh, largely being replaced by end-to-end -end deep learning models. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are some of the reasons that they fell out of favor? So, in intractability, of course, right? Uh, mm -hmm. No one has ever complained that inference in a deep learning model is intractable because you know it isn't. <laughs> uh, whereas for for um, factor graphs and undirected graphical models, um, 
even to do inference can be intractable. And then doing estimation, which typically requires multiple passes of inference, becomes even more intractable. Um, mm -hmm. And then approximations are not always aligned with, um, with how you estimate uh, the parameters. So you have uh, various interactions. So basically just a huge practical difficulty of, of making these models work. A lack of good frameworks. There are some frameworks, but they're not nearly at the level of engineering that, say, a modern deep learning framework has. So these are just practical reasons. Um, mm. For me personally, I had a bit of an epiphany with these models, um, which is to consider um, how you would actually use these models. So these models can be used either in an energy minimization sense. So you minimize the energy, you found the find the ground state, and you want this ground state to be a really good prediction. So this is a decision rule, mm -hmm. the structure prediction function, right? It outputs a single configuration. Or you can use them as probabilistic models. So for example, classic Markov random fields, classic conditional random fields are used to that end. And if you think about it, um, we are rarely interested really in probabilities. For example, if you think about early language models, uh, we are not interested in the probability of a, a sentence in a way as much as we are interested in outputting a single good sentence. So for an actual translation mm -hmm. system, for example, we want to present one translation to the user. So we need to make a decision based on the probability distribution described by the model. And so if you think about this, the optimal way to make decisions is described by decision theory, and you would optimize or you would minimize the expected loss over the distribution described by the model. And so now the question comes in, what loss? And so for many problems, that's really, really difficult. What is a good loss for image segmentation? What's a good, so a loss function is taking two configurations, so for example, one segmentation and a predicted segmentation and gives you a numeric score where lower is better. And say, for example, zero mm. would be the anchor for a perfect segmentation. And so it really hinges on that. For translation, it's even more difficult. So you have various scores like blue score or other score, uh, or blue score, or how it's called. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. Uh, it's hard to come up with scores which really capture the essence of the problem. And be because that's hard, for example, for image segmentation, many hundreds of papers have used as loss function just a pixel-wise accuracy. So you would count how many pixels have you gotten correct. And if you mm -hmm. think about the decision problem that corresponds to this loss function, it means that the loss function over the two joint configurations is actually a sum over the elements of each of these configurations of an individual loss function evaluated at individual elements, right? So you basically would have a sum over i of the loss function at the i's pixel. And if you think about mm -hmm. that, the optimal decision rule for any distribution is just to consider the marginal distribution per element and make a decision based just on the marginal distribution. So the joint distribution mm. actually does not matter if you have a loss function that decomposes. And that was for me, I mean, a, in hindsight, a trivial realization, but really that questioned the whole approach of defining fancy probabilistic models in the form of undirected graphical models um, and then using super trivial loss functions to make optimal decisions. It just, it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is that the optimal decision rule, even if you have the true distribution, would just consider the marginal distribution. So all the joint structure in the distribution that you capture doesn't matter. And in fact, you yeah. could you could just take the whole input, for example, an image, and just predict a single pixel individually, which incidentally is how many successful approaches in practice work. So for example, random forests and decision forests um, uh, used for medical segmentation, used for other segmentation tasks at the time until, say, 2015. 
um, they were very successful in just taking a patch or the whole image and predicting per pixel individually what how it should be labeled. Um, and so also modern deep learning, actually, if you're in the end, you do a softmax transform on each pixel individually on the stack of logits per pixel individually, right? You also take the product of marginal distributions. Mm -hmm. So you don't really express a joint distribution, right? You express a product of marginal distributions. The joint distribution is a product of its marginals. So it's a conditionally independent distribution. So there are exceptions, mm -hmm. of course, if you use, for example, conditional VAEs to do image segmentation. Um, in that case, you have a latent variable which couples everything, right? But in the standard approach, uh, a unit for image segmentation, right? You take an image, you have a conf stack, you have various hierarchies, et cetera, et cetera. It's all deterministic. And at the end, you take a softmax over logits per pixel individually. So you have the, the joint distribution is equal to the product of the marginals. So in that case, um, the, the decision theoretic mm -hmm. structure is irrelevant. I mean, no, no loss function can recover from from a conditionally independent distribution, um, and see. that and it's it's super successful. So that gave me a strong signal around I think 2014 or so. I had this realization that gave me the strong signal that the value is in building better likelihoods, better models, not in considering the decision theoretic structure, not in considering the better loss functions for our problems. Um, but other reasonable people have had different conclusions or different insights. So, you know, the verdict is still out. But for me, pre preferably, I see a lot more value in, in thinking about the model and um, uh, or adding latent variables to make it jointly coupled, et cetera, but not in trying to engineer good loss mm -hmm. functions. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a likelihood fan now. I'm a big fan of a likelihood. <laughs> <laughs> I see. that. That's really interesting. So... To summarize, I think if I was following correctly, you're saying that um, with these models, you're modeling the entire joint distribution, but then ultimately to generate a single prediction, you're using this loss function, um, which kind of decomposes over each element. So it loses the entire purpose of using the joint distribution. Correct. Correct. Exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then with a better model, you could potentially still have this decomposition, um, but it could still perform well, or alternatively, you could introduce a latent variable. Yes. So, uh, I mean, the first observation, absolutely, that's, that I totally agree. This is, uh, you expressed it shorter and more concise than I did. But um, the... No, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that a higher order loss is useless, but I think in, in many applications that I've seen, be it speech, be it language, be it vision, um, the value is in extracting much more information out of the input signal and you know, mm -hmm. having better models to understand the input signal and not in how you actually translate um, the final probabilistic output into a better individual decision. Right? Maybe there is a point for many of these applications where it's worth revisiting that assumption. Right? Once you have extracted all the information you can from the input signal and you have transferred this into the best possible marginal that you can do, right? Um, uh, then maybe it w actually is maybe worthwhile to revisit that actually now for, you know, make richer joint distributions, not conditionally independent ones, and revisit, you know, better loss functions or make better decisions under existing loss functions with a better, richer joint distribution. So, for example, the um, the conditional VAE approach. Um, so, I re let me try to remember um, who did it. Hong Lak Lee was an author on there, but there was a, um, another author. So, that has a promise, for example, for image segmentation. So imagine you see uh, 
an image where you have a green grass and on there is a, a brown blob that looks furry, right? So this could be a dog or it could be a cow, right? So, but you want the, mm -hmm. the model to either label the whole blob as cow or the whole block, blob as dog. So in this situation, it doesn't make sense to have uh, a model that just takes the... Um, that takes the uh, softmax transform of a logic per pixel independently, right? You really want mm -hmm. the model to make a decision probabilistically whether this is a dog and label it as dog, or whether it's a cow and label the whole thing as a cow. And then the model could still be uncertain, right? So if you draw samples from this joint distribution, maybe fifty percent should be cow and fifty percent should be dog, but there should not be a sample that says this is half cow and half dog, right? Mm -hmm. So so there is a, a benefit in considering the joint probability model. Right, um, and I think the CVAE approach, for example, is a way, one possible way to do that. Um, so I think there may be, in principle, value to pursue this. But right now, a lot of the progress is driven not on such approaches, but driven on having more powerful interpretation of the input signal, and that makes a lot of the uncertainty go away. And it turns out that the product of conditional independent models is 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 very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess. Just to stay, just one more question about this. So then in the case of language, currently a lot of methods are based on language models, which do model the entire joint distribution through this uh, factorization with the chain rule. But ultimately we might still use them to just generate a single prediction. Do you think that something is flawed with that, that approach that we might want to rethink that? So I I have followed from the sidelines the, the progress on natural language models, but I haven't been actively involved. And I think the big benefit mm -hmm. and also the big difference to say computer vision problems is that you have a natural sequential order, right? So mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can also you know like with a, with recent transformer models or other language models, right? You, that at least for the input side, you you don't use a sequential order. Um, or insertion transformers trying re to relax the sequential assumption for the output side as well. So there's a lot of approaches mm -hmm. going, but at least you have, um, for the normal factorization, you have a way to factorize a distribution. And that's really challenging mm -hmm. if you think about even a 2D image and you want to make decisions. You can factorize it along some ordering, and that works well with autoregressive models, but then you have computational problems, etc. So I'm a bit on the fence, like whether what's the right way forward. I'm reasonably convinced that you know the likelihood is a good training objective in general um, mm -hmm. um, but you know other reasonable people disagree and I, I think you, you worked on unlikelihood training as well so um, <laughs> yeah um, no yeah yeah that helps Th this was a great discussion and, and overview maybe going back to the complexity of uh, these uh, factor graph models could we talk about this the inference problem just at a high level this map MRF problem Yes. Um, and maybe how this LP relaxation is used, because that's what uh, you kind of dealt with in the rest of the thesis. Yes, absolutely. So um, for these MRF models, or for like these energy functions over discrete variables, so let's say discrete factor graph models, the mm -hmm. fundamental problem of inference, um, there are two problems. You can either treat this as a probabilistic inference problem where you want to find marginal distributions over the distribution. However, in the what's called a map problem in computer vision, which is not necessarily the right terminology, but basically um, 
the it's also called the energy minimization problem you want to just minimize the energy you want to just find the the state that has globally the minimum energy so there's a finite amount of states because it's all discrete variables but it, you have this huge combinatorial explosion and so how do you efficiently find the the ground state so there's two ways you can uh, like many ways but the two main ways you can approach this is either you maintain a feasible state so a discrete labeling and you have ways to improve these labeling um, and that's very empirically successful. So, for example, the, there's a whole class of algorithms, hundreds of papers on so-called move-making algorithms, which iteratively improve the configuration. Um, basically, very clever variations of local search where the local neighborhood is of a very large size, exponentially large size. And so you basically get huge improvements very efficiently. And the other class of approaches, which relate to the linear programming relaxation, is to make the problem easier by relaxing it. And that means embedding the problem into a continuous domain and describing the structure of the problem in such a way that you can take away certain constraints so that you get a larger set over which you optimize. And this larger set turns out to be efficiently optimizable over. So, um, and that's why it's called a relaxation because um, you embed the problem into a special linear program. And if you would solve this linear program in addition to maintaining integrality constraints so you would solve actually an integer linear program then you would obtain the exact solution but if you relax the integer constraint you actually have just a linear program which is polynomial time solvable and you get uh, a relaxed labeling so now you can have what's called tight states so you can have for example a variable that simultaneously takes uh, a fractional state so for example it's one half this state and one half that state and so you don't get a a single individual image labeling you get a superposition of labelings so that's the on a, on a very high level um, the linear program programming relaxation and the way it is relevant to the content of my thesis is that we basically use the linear programming relaxation approach to these image segmentation problems um, mm -hmm. to combine that with um, another linear program or another constraint set described by linear constraints which ensure that certain higher order properties hold for the segmentation that we produce. So in particular, we were interested in producing segmentations which are topologically connected. So on the image plane, if you would look at the segmentation, they need to be one piece. And that is mm -hmm. very difficult to ensure from um, in a Markov random field on a factor graph because essentially the factor that needs to ensure that would have to talk to all the variables at once. And these higher order factors are hard to operate with and are incompatible with uh, message passing algorithms, etc. So taking the linear programming relaxation route allowed us to leverage new techniques and uh, or like existing techniques in a new context, in particular what's called the polyhedral combinatorics uh, formulation to the approach. Um, and I did some, I mean, it's probably the most uh, intellectually satisfying part of my thesis in a way for me because this was really fun and um, mathematically beautiful and it you know uh, relates both geometry and optimization to combinatorial uh, graph theory basically so or graph properties um, so it's very nice intellectually however it was again it uh, although it improved a bit on like small cases it wasn't really either scalable or made a difference in real segmentation tasks mm, i see but yeah i mean i agree i it was enjoyable to read through this i found it pretty fascinating i think the the basic idea for people that aren't familiar is that these 
constraints in the linear program form a polyhedron or a polytope. Polytope, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, basically, the the map MIF linear programming relaxation. So the linear programming relaxation that you solve for getting the minimum energy configuration that describes already a polytope. So a polytope is uh, in Euclidean space is a convex a convex hull of a finite set of points. And so every point on this polytope corresponds to a possible solution of the relaxation. And a subsense of, subset of these corner points corresponds to the integer solution. So that's kind of the linear program corresponding to the um, energy minimization problem. And we defined another polytope and intersected these two polytopes. An intersection of polytopes is super efficient in linear programs because you just basically append the constraint sets. And so the interesting, the intellectually interesting thing was this other polytope, which we called connected subgraph polytope. And mm -hmm. um, it's it's relatively easy to explain. So if you imagine, for example, um, a line graph. So a graph with three nodes. Let's call them one, two, and three. And node one is connected to two, and node two is connected to three. And what we want to do is we want to um, assign a zero or a one to each of the nodes. So we have always a vector that is, for example, the vector zero 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 or the vector one zero one, etc. So we have labelings of the of the vertices of this graph. And mm -hmm. um, if you think about all the, so it's a, basically you can say it's a three dimensional vector, right? Every possible labeling is a three dimensional vector. And if you plot all these vectors in three-dimensional Euclidean space, you get a, a cube, right? And the interesting thing then is to say, okay, we want only those labelings which correspond to connected subgraphs of this line graph. So in this case, it would be all configurations except one, and the configuration that is not part of it would be where vertices one and three are labeled with a one, and vertex two is not included. So you can think of these uh, labelings as indicating which which vector is part of a subgraph. And if you include one and three, well, then you know one and three are not connected because you know two is missing in the middle. So what we want to do now is to cut that that single point away from the cube, right? And if you think about the convex hull of all the points, you get a cube. But if you take away one point and you get uh, you take the convex hull of the remaining seven points, then you get a cube with a with a corner cut. And so the interesting thing now is this, this, this cut that you would need to make on the cube. This is a linear inequality, and we have an expression of how this linear equality um, is expressed as a property of the graph. And in fact, it turns out for, for real graphs, not line graph, but bigger graphs, you have an exponential number of linear inequalities that you need to simultaneously ensure hold in order to get a connected graph. And so the interesting thing there is really the... So the polyhedral combinatoric aspect is to find these inequalities and prove that they really are what's called facet-defining. So they define one of those facets of the convex hull. So that's intellectually very satisfying. And then there's an algorithmic component, which is, as a coder and hacker, it's satisfying to actually write code which can find inequalities to given a query point in the three-dimensional space, for example, can find an inequality which is violated and output that, mm. or prove that no such inequality exists. So that's called the uh, um, separation problem. And it turns out if you can solve the separation problem efficiently, you can also solve the optimization problem efficiently. It's a famous result from Martin Gretschel in the 80s that basically relates, um, um, relates optimization over 
polytopes which have exponentially many facets to sequence of individual optimization problem sets. So we basically, in the CSIS, we, we define this object, we characterize it with polyhedral combinatorics, we uh, write an algorithm which, which efficiently finds violated inequalities, and then um, using this algorithm, we can solve these segmentation problems subject to connectivity constraints. Um, ultimately, the algorithm is not very, not very scalable. It's polynomial time, but it's not very scalable. And also, um, the difficulty is, of course, uh, fundamentally that we had very weak likelihood models. So adding these simple constraints, which are very useful, in, in I mean, very plausible, let's say, that an object is connected. You can probably imagine situations where an object is occluded by a lamppost and then, you know, it's not connected. But in absence of these odd situations, you basically can assume that objects usually tend to be um, topologically connected on the image plane. Um, with these weak likelihoods, the, we cannot really do much of a difference. So, And with strong likelihoods, as provided by deep learning, a lot of these constraints are no longer needed because you know the segmentation is already so good. So um, <laughs> that's kind of, again, a story of, you know, we had a really clever idea. It was, it was um, maybe not a super clever idea, but it was kind of intellectually very satisfying. It was motivated by real application, but ultimately turned out not to really yield a benefit um, very much. But I enjoyed that part of this very much. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to read through like all the different uh, because I, I think you mentioned some of them, like you would rely on these theorems that have been proven probably just in pure mathematics that had to do with just pure either optimization or this polyhedral combinatorics. And then you proved some of your own theorems along the way about sort of like finding the most violated constraint and it all came together at the end. I imagine that it was probably... When you read the final product, it, it reads like a linear story, but maybe it was pretty difficult to, to yes. uh, construct this solution. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. It, fe it felt like always addressing the next, the next thing. I mean, the goal was reasonably clear. And then um, hmm. I, in my, during my thesis, I had lots of time. So I know no one was really pushing me in any particular direction. So I, I remember, for example, that I spent six months of my thesis time to just read reasonably random subsets of the operations research literature, just because I was so interested yeah. in it. And then this included, you know, all kinds of combinatorial optimization, scheduling problems, resource allocation problems, linear programming formulations, model building with integer linear programs, etc. So just out of intellectual curiosity, um, and but because of that, then you know, turns out. You know, a year later or so, I could leverage and make connections and so on. So that's, um, I don't know if that's a function of having maybe, a, you know, a good memory or just being allowed to wander intellectually or something. Or maybe it's a bad sign to not be supervised properly. I don't know. But in hindsight, I think it has worked out properly and uh, it was great fun. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that this this wandering becomes harder and harder like the the more you go into your career? Like finding time to do that? I think so. Um, I don't know if it's to the extent that I did in a thesis is, I mean, basically, I think many people share that experience that during the thesis, one has this intellectual freedom and one has the, uh, the time. Of course, nowadays, I think maybe it's different with the rate of archive, with the rate of conference publications, with the bar having raised considerably, I think, for, for students working in machine learning. 
um, I think it's it's probably getting harder even for PhD students. As a, during the career, I think it's interesting. One always, if if you really think like the the luxury that I have at the moment, the privilege that I have working in an advanced research lab, the goal is to, you know, not go for the marginal uh, marginal improvements, but really think what are substantial innovations and of course you know one cannot produce them like by pushing a button or something one really has to think and i think in such a luxury situation on being an industrial research lab at one of the top places i think one has the freedom still it maybe becomes harder and at some point because the own personal ambition also grows one wants to have a continu continuing research direction one wants to have really a mm -hmm. sustained impact in a, in a particular thing not just the next paper right um mm -hmm. i think uh, at some point one needs to justify the idea to others and ideas are fragile initially every idea is fragile right and it's so easy to stomp on 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 new ideas right or put the foot down and so it it boils down also that the organization it boils down to the fact that the organizations that sustain good research also have good management in place that they are maintaining a balance between you know on the one hand making sure that ideas really are seen through and have significant impact but on the other hand also allowing for uh you know curious explorations and i mm -hmm. you know i rather have my own i for my own i would rather have you know 10 ideas and quickly read out eight bad ideas and pursue two ideas and maybe one of them is really you know successful or at least usable um mm -hmm. then they're not being allowed to have these 10 ideas but i think in general i think yes it becomes more difficult um, and it's mm -hmm. more a function of the organization and the culture of the organization where um, where one is allowed to have intellect and, and the function of the colleagues. I mean, nothing is more motivating than brainstorming or having a crazy discussion about a new idea with a great colleague, right? And as long mm -hmm. as you have great colleagues around, that's a super good sign that you uh, you have the liberty to do some great research and explorations. It does sound like a different a, a difficult um, management problem to solve. A balancing kind of exploration versus some type of return on the research maybe but it's good to hear that you said that you do have a good level of freedom that allows you to explore so yeah yeah absolutely yeah so maybe going to the next part which is on this solution stability mm -hmm. so here i guess you're uh, investigating this notion of stability which maybe we'll talk about and I think it kind of brings up this problem that we touched on earlier of probabilistic versus non-probabilistic models. Mm -hmm. Do you maybe want to give an overview of what yes. you're doing here? So basically, it was, I think, a follow-on project for me having gained expertise and quite a detailed understanding of linear programming at the time in my in my thesis, so, or at my time in my PhD studies. Mm -hmm. So the I, question was simply if I can formulate a problem as a linear program and I have solved it as a linear program, and this could be a machine learning problem, for example. So the way this could arise is, for example, as we already discussed with this energy minimization formulation. So for example, the likelihood function or the energy functions would be learned. And so then the coefficients in the linear program would arise from uh, a machine learning model. And the constraints in the linear program, for example, would ensure that certain properties um, are satisfied and that certain elements are actually interact in the right way. So if mm -hmm. I solve it and I get a solution vector, 
can I perform some sort of sensitivity analysis? And the big problem there is we can do sensitivity analysis very well for continuous differentiable functions. So, for example, we can do a, a local sensitivity analysis by just considering uh, gradient and hessians, for example, right? So, what's the rate of change if I wiggle on the input on the coefficients of the of the model, right? What's the what's the change in the output? And I can consider various properties of the Jacobian matrix and various notions of stability there. But in a combinatorial problem, as described by the linear program, that's no longer so easy. So, if you, for example, imagine that. Uh, linear program over a polytope. So if you optimize a linear function over polytope, the optimum is always achieved at least by one vertex. It could be that an entire facet achieves an optimum, but usually, let's say, for simplicity, a single vertex in this polytope, a single point on the edge of the polytope achieves the optimal solution. So now the question is, mm -hmm. if you move the coefficient vector just a tiny bit in epsilon, the solution doesn't move at all. But you reach a certain critical point and then it jumps to the next vertex. Right. So then the question is, okay, what does even stability mean? And what does sensitivity mean? Sensitivity analysis and linear programs. And so the way we formalize it is that we have um, a direction along which we change the coefficient. And we want to know an interval, uh, how much in this direction can we change before we jump to the next vertex? And so mm -hmm. um, the nice thing is if one poses it that way, um, there's two nice things. So first of all, one can define this problem in such a way that the answer is provided by solving an auxiliary linear program. So you can solve another linear program and you basically get the solution out that you're looking for. But moreover, by posing it in that way, you can also solve it over, um, over linear programs that are defined through this polyhedral combinatorics aspect. So you can define it over polytopes, which are implicitly described by a very large number of inequalities uh, and you only know at any one point in time, you only know a fraction of it. And so the example we picked for the paper was the so-called multi-cut polytope, which was used quite successfully afterwards, actually sparked a small line of research in using it for various segmentation and vision tasks. But this multi-cut polytope has this property also that you have uh, you know many, many inequalities. Um, actually solving it exactly is NP-hard, which is reflected in not all inequalities being known, and certainly some inequalities are not polynomial time separable. So this all comes back full circle. But one knows subsets of inequalities which can be polynomial time separated. And uh, we can pose interesting machine learning problems in uh, into this multi-cut problem. And other people, for example, a very successful group in Heidelberg have um, basically built on this a lot and, and published many more and probably a lot better papers in the subsequent years on how to use a multi-cut polytope for solving real problems. But the way we posted mm -hmm. was to, uh, for example, certain clustering problems. Um, so for example, the goal, the, one of the example problems was to have a social network of people. In this case, I think it was 40 people or 100 people or so. And you know who communicated with whom. And now you want to basically cluster the social network into groups so that you basically maximize some notion of within cluster communication and minimize some notion with between cluster communication. Um, and mm -hmm. so if you pose this, you naturally arrive at a multi-cut formulation. But now the question is, okay, this clustering, is it actually a natural clustering? Or is this clustering a very instable random chance occurrence. And if you basically would change things slightly, then um, you would get a very different clustering. And so our approach allowed us to formalize this question and to study it. And um, yeah, I think it's a, 
it's an interesting technique. Um, I think the the main way it survives in current literature is basically identifying the multi-cut LP relaxation as a good target for casting certain machine learning problems into. And I think people have built on this quite successfully. Um, yeah. So you talked about the clustering. And then how does the stability come into play? So the clustering, yeah. The clustering is defined by the multi-cut problem, which is basically um, you have an undirected graph, which at each edge has a positive or negative weight. And um, so it's not a dense graph. So this graph may have you know, um, only a subset of the edges. All edges which are not present, you can basically assume that they have a value of zero. You can add them and add them a value of zero. And so then you want to optimize a linear function of this weight. Uh, you want to optimize uh, a vector that identifies uh, all the vertices, uh, all the edges. So basically, should you keep the edge mm. or should you cut the edge? In such a way that when you cut the edges, you get consistent clusters. So all the edges within mm. a cluster are preserved, and all the edges between clusters are cut. Um, so, for example, if you think of a triangle graph, one to three, and one is connected to two, two is connected to three, and three is connected to one, right? So mm. if you only cut one edge, for example, the edge between one and two then it is not a multi-cut because you only cut one edge, but you didn't cut it consistently with the cluster structure. So if you would cut, for example, the edge between one and two and the edge between one and three, then you have two clusters, the node, the, the node one and the node two and three. So it's an optimization problem defined on a, bin uh, on a, on a vector uh, that lives at the edges and either an edge is included or not. And the subset of of valid partitionings of the graph corresponds to all multi-cut feasible solutions. And mm. uh, so by this way, now what is stability? Stability is, uh, for example, you take, the, uh, you take the, the weights that you have at the edges and you add a constant one vector to, you add a one element scaled by a coefficient, for example, alpha, to all of these edge weights. And if you take alpha to minus infinity, all the edge weights would be minus infinity and you would cut all the edges. So every person would be individually in their own cluster. And now you can ask, okay, now if I increase alpha and I sweep through the, through the linear scale of alpha, at some point I would start clustering people together. Right? The optimal solution would be where no longer everybody is individually a cluster, but you would merge people. And so you sweep through this alpha towards plus infinity, where everybody belongs to the same one big cluster. So you can now define a solution path of solutions. At the one extreme, you have everybody in their own cluster. At the other extreme, everybody is in the same cluster, in the one big cluster. And so now the, the interesting thing is to look at, okay, if you sweep this alpha vector, for which ranges of alpha you get very stable configurations? Um, mm. And so our algorithm allows us to do that. Um, and, you know, of course, for practical application, the question then depends, okay, what are these edge weights and what the clusters represent and what are the nodes, et cetera. So the practical implications are then more interesting. And people have, for example, applied this to image segmentation task, or medical segmentation task, et cetera. So the multi-cut problem is, um, is an interesting problem which occurs in many different contexts. And we applied it to, I think, clustering problems. Yeah, I see. Yeah, and this was another case of, it seems like there's a lot of interesting mathematics, probably a lot of interesting exploration uh, in order to to solve this one too. Do you think that this notion of um, being able to show the stability of a given model is a good property to, to, to aim for 
Yeah, I think in general, um, and this ties into what I did more recently, uh, you want, I mean, first of all, you want your machine learning system to be robust, right? Everybody wants, or reliable, right? And reliable can mean many different things in different contexts, but you want certainly your solution and your predictions in particular not to depend on spurious small things that could change where so a small change in the input a small change in the parameters etc should not produce a big change in the output that would be something that is mm -hmm. in generally desirable right and i think a lot of properties around adversarial robustness and uh, generalization itself and privacy preserving learning etc uh, relate to this fundamental notion that um, if small changes can produce big changes, if small changes in the input could produce big changes in the output, right? Then it's not stable and it also is bad for many other reasons, generalization and robustness, etc. So I think that's generally a desirable property. And um, in particular for, for deep learning, I mean, I spent the last year working on uncertainty in deep learning and how to make more robust uncertainty in deep learning and how to, you know, make the systems know what they don't know. And I think so that... That motivation mm. that originally motivated the stability study of these small clustering problems, I think that has stayed with me that I want the systems not to just produce something with no guarantees, um, but instead, mm. you know, if I cannot give guarantees, at least I want to have a numerical characterization of um, what the system thinks about its solution. And for linear programs, that's, you know, we can very easily formalize this in a way we did in the paper. But I think for mm. uh, for current deep learning systems, there's more work to do there. And it's very important work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe um, there's, there's some sort of connection with what you worked on um, during the PhD with the stability and this more recent work, for example, on uh, Bayesian neural networks, like you had this recent paper, how good is the Bayes posterior? Yes, um, glad you mentioned it. <laughs> it's very fresh. It's just been accepted to ICML. And um, mm -hmm. so in that paper, we studied, um, oh, let, me, let me backtrack. So the modern deep learning basically, uh, to a large extent, works on uh, optimizing a likelihood function. Right, and so we optimize it using efficient first-order optimizers, and those optimizers and initialization schemes have certain biases as well, which are often beneficial. But in general, the function that we optimize is a likelihood function, or log-likelihood function of the model. So then the question is, if we already use um, probabilistic models and their likelihood function, um, what does the Bayesian approach bring? To the table and there's a lot of you know intrinsic belief in the Bayesian deep learning community and in you know generally people working with probabilistic models that in general it is desirable to explore the Bayesian approach and so mm -hmm. um, my observation that motivated this work was that basically in the last five years there's a whole revival of the sub community and many many interesting methods and really genuine sense of progress but despite this progress um, from my industrial practice, where I have seen deep learning solution being deployed, I've seen many, many, many things deployed um, at, at two different companies. Um, and deep learning has had amazing impact across applications. None of these deployed solutions have been Bayesian deep learning solutions. And of course, you know, there may be examples in various places that I'm not aware of, or even people have pointed me to examples, but it just pales in comparison to the impact of applied deep learning 
across a huge number of domains. So the question then is obviously, I mean, if Bayesian, if the Bayesian paradigm has so much to offer in terms of incorporating domain knowledge, consistent handling of uncertainty, improved reliability prediction, you know, maybe more calibrated uncertainty that allows you to diagnose when your model should not be applied, etc. So all these potential benefits, allowing for better decision mm-hmm. problems, sequential learning, continual learning, etc. So a lot of potential benefits. And a lot of effort has gone into the many for many years. Why is it not materializing or translating into real impact? So that was the starting point. And um, I initially we started this believing that we could basically understand and fix and maybe you know really demonstrate the benefit once and for all. But what we discovered is actually we spent a lot of effort in uh, using the most accurate method to do posterior inference in deep learning models, which are stochastic gradient Markov chain Monte Carlo approaches. So these are based on mm-hmm. approximating the posterior distribution by iterative computation. So basically very similar to performing stochastic gradient descent with a bit of extra noise. And this extra noise is chosen such that you basically induce limiting dynamics which correspond to the base posterior. So there are a lot of details on how to do this. Um, we invented diagnostics which show us that the current approaches don't perform very well. And we improved on these current approaches through clever preconditioning, for example. And um, ultimately gaining more and more confidence that what we are doing is really quite, hopefully quite close, at least as close as we could get to the true base posterior. And there's always, you cannot prove that you're close to the base posterior, but we spend probably more effort than anyone to really get close to the base posterior of a deep learning model, of realistic deep learning models like a ResNet 20, for example. So after we spent all these efforts, we discovered that the base posterior predictive solution, so the solution you would get if you perform model averaging of many, many models, hundreds of models, weighted by the posterior probability of these models. If you do that, your predictions are actually worse in terms of predictive log likelihood than a single SGD solution. And that's a bit of a shocker. And for like three months or so, we try to understand what are we doing wrong? You know, what, where is the bug in our implementation or where is the problem with our whatever part of the system? So we try to really, in a diagnostic mode, uh, very systematically explore why this is the case. And ultimately, we investigated in this paper six different hypotheses. Uh, what, could, um, what could explain this? And... Um, the ultimate conclusion is that we don't have a definite conclusion, but we can rule out certain things. And um, it is it has something to do with the prior, so the prior has an effect. Um, but there's something more interesting going on. And I think, I hope that this work contributes to at least, you know, causing a change of where we spend our effort in, in the Bayesian deep learning community instead of having yet another approximate inference technology or yet another you know, fancy um, fancy method in Bayesian deep learning, I think we need to go a bit more back to the basics and understand this phenomenon and hopefully in a satisfactory way with insight, fix it. And the way forward in the world will be Bayesian deep learning. So I'm all for it. But I think right now mm-hmm. the effort should be all focused on uh, or mostly focused on understanding what is really going on there. Just like in, for example, in deep learning, really good theory researchers have now started to really look at deep learning in the last two or three years have really looked at deep learning and study for example mode connectivity studied generalization in deep learning uh, studied uh, you know effects of um, the width of a network etc so i think similar we need a change similarly we need a change in bayesian deep learning and understanding these basic effects because it, ultimately a lot of the Bayesian deep learning community focuses on more 
more accurate approximate inference. And we did a really good job at, um, I, I hope we did a good job. And we released the code mm -hmm. so anyone can reproduce the results uh, to, to make the best approximate inference that we could come up with. And we invented two new diagnostics to actually show that, you know, it's at least with respect to these diagnostics, it's better than anything that has been there before. Um, and yet the result has been worse. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that causes some people to rethink. And hopefully, you know, within a year or so, we see somebody explaining this phenomenon in a really satisfactory way and fixing it. And I, um, so I'm, I'm for that. It turns out if you, for example, mm -hmm. then, consider a modified base posterior, which is no longer the base posterior, but a temporized posterior. And in this paper, we call it a cold posterior. So if you temporize the posterior to a low temperature, which means you concentrate the posterior, you basically concentrate it around its high probability regions and eventually only its mode. Um, if you do that, you actually pr improve the predictive performance. And mm -hmm. uh, there are various hypotheses floated at the moment in the field for why this is the case. I think it's relatively poorly understood. And also the question is, why is this particular transformation of temporizing the right one? Why not any other transformation? You know, Why not put the, the weighting functions through a nonlinear monotonic function or something? Right? There are many other possible weighting functions you could use except tempering. Um, so I think that's mm -hmm. that's also maybe fertile ground for understanding and then doing better there. Um, but ultimately, coming back to the question of the Caesars, um, I think it's in a way related that it's a meta meta study of the methods that we use. And in the same way, sensitivity analysis is a study of a method that we use and the solutions that we obtain. And so I, what ties it together is this notion of trying to understand in a principled way the methods that we use and outputting not just single prediction, but outputting more than that uh, sensitivity or uncertainty or other robustness properties. I really like that style of research where it seems like the main goal is understanding. If I looked at this figure where you're, is it lowering? Yeah, lowering the temperature of the posterior. And at a certain point, it actually starts performing better than SGD. So yes. the temptation might be to say, let's just use the Bayesian deep learning with the lower temperature. But I think what you're getting at is that understanding why this phenomenon is happening is really the important thing. Yes, exactly. And it's, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's fair. And maybe, I mean, there are practically minded people who, who are not so much grounded in philosophy or actually are willing to accept things that I'm not willing to accept. So very reasonable and rational people disagree with me and that's absolutely fine with me. But I, I hope that, you know, mm. by putting, by putting this observation out there, mm -hmm. the general, Bayesian philosophy of, you know, you have a likelihood, you have a prior, you do posterior inference. And if something goes wrong, it can be only two things. It can be the model, you know, or the, like the likelihood, it can be the prior or the approximate inference. So basically, uh, if you now present such a problematic observation that the predictions are relatively poor for the true base posterior temperature one, then, you know, it would be great to understand why this is the case. Is a prior wrong? Is the likelihood wrong? Is a prior and likelihood mismatched? Is um, the approximate inference still broken? And by the way, I mean, we, we didn't start out in studying this phenomenon. We started out with the belief that with a concerted mm -hmm. effort, we can make Bayesian deep learning succeed and make it a practical technology that is as efficient as normal deep learning and make the world Bayesian. That's how we started out. This was one and a half years ago when I just, when I joined, um, when I joined Google, uh, that was a mm -hmm. pitch and, uh, a lot of people worked on this. So um, 
you know, ultimately, it's a failure on, on that agenda. And uh, but it's a it it mm-hmm. it's an honest failure in the sense that we then try to understand why it doesn't work and really pushed very hard on its understanding dimension. And and for me, then that's you know, I hope. I probably myself won't build on this and probably if I would uh, want a really reliable model, I would use tempering or I would use just uh, deep ensemble. So just training multiple models from scratch with SGD and ensembling their predictions. That works actually a bit better. Uh, so from a pragmatic point of view, there are many choices, but I think from the philosophical point of view and the, the Bayesian community is, Bayesian mm-hmm. deep learning community is very, you know, strongly rooted in a philosophical belief, uh, you know, I hope this is evidence that you know we should question maybe not our beliefs but question our unconditioned beliefs in it will just work fine and really try to understand and improve what's um, improve the the ingredients that lead to this outcome and hopefully in such a way that it's even better afterwards right it's even more satisfactory afterwards and so I think it's it cannot be ignored in a way and I'm very happy that the paper has already received some original traction and you know at least people are aware of this finding. And I think that's the most important contribution that people are aware of this finding and it's reproducible and the code is online. And hopefully, you know, some really smart people that have more ideas than, than we have as a team that we wrote the paper, investigate another direction and find an easy fix. I mean, that would be the most the most best outcome for me, an easy fix mm-hmm. that is easily implementable, that is compatible with all of existing deep learning technology and actually make it work even better than SGD models or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be a really nice outcome. Like, for instance, with this hypothesis about the priors, maybe there's been a lot of work that people have done on different priors. And now that they know about this observation, potentially they could show that it fixes the issue or or something along those lines. Yeah, there's one more test that they can use to demonstrate, you know, what's the effect on that. And maybe it turns out that it's a really beneficial effect. And indeed, I mean, the prior was the most sensitive element that we we studied in the paper. You know, we really observed there is a change due to the prior, but you can only try so many priors. And um, people, of course, you know, in the... In the rebuttal, or like in the in the reviewer feedback and in online discussions, people have very reasonable suggestions, and we tried some of them. I mean, we just have the, I think the revised version will be out soon on archive, um, and and the ICML final version has a lot of these suggestions incorporated in. So we did a lot of additional experiments to accommodate those. Um, but yeah, I hope exactly um, it can, it can be fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Um... I guess we went back to, it was 2009 was when your thesis was, and then this paper is in 2020. So we'll have to modify the thesis review to do a uh, post-thesis review to cover 2010 through 2019. But it's uh, it's been a great discussion, and um, it's been interesting to see how your research interests have changed, but also the, the connections between what you did back then and, and now it's kind of hard to summarize, but if you could think of one piece of advice, um, maybe for a PhD student. Right. Well, first of all, let me say that, you know, I absolutely enjoyed this conversation and uh, thank you for for having me in your Mm -hmm. podcast. Um, So in terms of advice, it's maybe difficult to summarize. um, But I think personally, for me, I, I always saw myself as a generalist. So I'm Compared certainly to some of my colleagues, I have, you know, I was intellectually curious in many different directions. And 
um, initially I was doubtful that you know the focus this, this basically leads to a lack of focus in my in my research but in hindsight I think certainly in a fast changing environment like machine learning with so many opportunities I mean uh, everywhere you look in application domains and it's an opportunity for machine learning to you know make a positive difference uh, it actually is very um, very effective to be a reasonable generalist. So, mm -hmm. and therefore, one can really follow the intellectual curiosity as well. One can uh, explore many different domains. I, I was fortunate enough for many years. I worked in a multidisciplinary lab. I worked with, you know, people from human-computer interaction. I worked with people in applied product teams that had, you know, really interesting signal processing problems. And um, with a bit of curiosity and with a more broad background and having a, a tool chest with many different hammers that one can deploy. Um, one can always find interesting problems in many domains and, and try to make a positive difference. So if anything, this advice may not work for, for everyone and people are very different, right? But for me, if I could go back to myself in, in 2009 or so, I would say, don't worry about focus, you know, follow your interests and have a broad mind and build up your tool chest over time, learn different techniques. And the, and the aggregate will be that you have more opportunities to actually steer where you want to go, wh which problems you want to engage, which groups you want to work with, which colleagues you want to work in, because you have more bigger surface where you can contribute. And so that's kind of what the advice I would give myself. I don't know if it would work mm -hmm. for everyone, but I think machine learning is such an amazing field. It touches all of computer science. It touches so many application domains. And um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so don't be afraid to be a generalist and just keep building the toolbox. Exactly. Yeah.